I know we can be passionate about a lot of things in life. And uh, here's a couple scriptures that I would share with you in light of just everything that's going on. And, and there's always a ton going on. Psalm 46, 10 and 11 says, Be still, cease striving, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Now I know a lot of passionate prayers went up to heaven in light of this election. And I know that we're all concerned about our country and it doesn't really matter what side of the aisle you may find yourself. What matters is that we care and we cry out to God and Psalm 46, 10, and 11, I wanted to share with you just so that you can know that the leadership in heaven never changes. <laughs> never changes. And, uh, you know, people can be passionate about what they believe, and, uh, you know, we can be, we can feel a little bit like, you know, we're on uncertain ground. But as a believer, I am never on shaky ground. Never. Because my hope in Christ is the anchor of my soul. Now this uh, Advent season, we've been praying about a theme. And it came to us in one of the meetings just recently. And the theme is going to be a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices from O Holy Night. Isn't that cool? And I know there's a lot of tired people in this room. <laughs> and, and, you know, we can be fighting on many different fronts. And... We just, you know, we're, we're coming to the end of a study of the two letters to the Thessalonians. And let me remind you of a study that we did recently, which says, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. By the way, I mentioned to you in that sermon that all three of those are God's will for you. That you rejoice always, that you pray without ceasing, and that you give thanks in everything. Sweet sister in the congregation came up to me a little while ago and just said that she felt like the Lord was saying, just hold on, I've heard your prayers, I know your heart, and you know, the Lord moves through all different seasons of life. His greatest victory was on one of the darkest days in history when Jesus died on a cross and everybody was confused and hurt and wounded, but then the victory came. And so this is how our God works. So I would just encourage you not to fret. Uh, the Lord is not going anywhere, no matter what happens in our world. And whether you're rejoicing over results that happened or you're bummed out, the Lord is not going anywhere. Amen? That's why we're here. I built my life on the anchor of Christ and nothing else. Okay, we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Standing firm in the truth is the text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're new to us, what we do is we read the passage together, standing if you're physically able to stand, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17. So we'll finish chapter 2 this morning, and this word has a lot to say to us, and here's what it says. Paul writing, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. 
It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. And all God's people said, (laughs) amen. You may be seated. Father, thank you for a timely word. Your word is always timely, but it's so good to see words like eternal comfort and standing firm in the truth and things that we need to hear. We have a little section to deal with, but it's filled, it's power-packed, as your whole word is. It's inspired by God, and it's literally powerful. It's like the rain that comes down and waters the earth. It produces growth in our lives. Give us ears to hear what you would say to us today. Help us to put aside all the other stuff, all the, the burdens that we carry. Let them melt away in the beauty of your presence and in the power of of your word. Your word will not come back void. We're going to prosper today because we're getting into it. And I pray that it would speak and perform its work for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Standing firm in the truth. Now, this letter was written to calm the fears and correct some false doctrine in the Thessalonian believers. Notice in verse 2, just to remind you, probably the main purpose of the letter. He writes that you, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, Paul has been endeavoring by the inspiration of the Spirit to correct, to calm and correct about specifically the day of the Lord, which would be the return of Christ or the end of the world. And what people were essentially saying is this, have we entered into the day of the Lord? Have, we, have some of our loved ones missed the resurrection and the rapture? There was some confusing teaching afoot, just like there is in our day, there was in Paul's day. And Paul wrote the letter to calm God's people, and I pray that that will be part of what happens today, and correct, and then at the end of the letter to bring, or the end of the chapter, to bring comfort to our hearts. Amen? That's something that we always need. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's saying there's no reason to be shaken in your beliefs. The day of the Lord has not yet come, and it will not come. And then we had two markers that we looked at in chapter 2. Until the great apostasy comes first, the great rebellion And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition. And it says that the Lord will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. And so we can have good confidence that even in the end when uh, all hell breaks loose and there's a man of lawlessness that shows up on the scene, that Jesus Christ will vanquish him and just with the power of his coming, the power of his glory, we don't have to be afraid Heaven's leadership never changes. (laughs) Praise God. He is good all the time. And, yeah, you can finish that. And all the time, he is good. And one other thing, you have not been destined to wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Tribulation is going to come. Jesus said, in this world, you are going to have trouble. 
but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So don't freak out, be still, cease striving, and know that I am God. And verse 13, Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God for you. We always have things to be thankful for. And here, Paul says, I am thankful for you. The word but is a contrasting word because it contrasts the believers in Thessalonica, the genuine church, with those who are going to be duped by a lie. Look at verse 10. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, on this group of people, God will send upon them a deluding influence or a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false or believe the lie in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But there's the contrast. We should always give thanks to God for you. You will not believe the lie. You will not fall under God's judgment. You will not be deluded because you are in the truth. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the anointing from God, and you know what's true. And you are in Him who is true. Amen? That is Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ came to reveal the truth. He said to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth Here's my voice. And Pilate cynically said to him, what is truth? Pilate didn't know what truth was, but truth, ironically, was standing right in front of him, embodied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss it. He is the truth. And we can be thankful, Paul says, of you, brethren, this fairly young church, because you are three things. You are loved by the Lord. Amen. God chose you from the beginning, if you have the New English, and you probably don't, the beginning of time, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. We'll get to uh, something else in verse 14. But you were thankful to you, brethren, for you, brethren, because you are loved by God. You are beloved by the beloved of the Lord. Just park there for a second. You are loved by God. Sometimes we just got to park there, right? Because we get weighed down with so many different things, and sometimes we feel unworthy of God's love. This is a brand new church, really. They're pretty young in the Lord. They, they don't have all their theology together, and we don't have all of our theology together or all of our stuff together. I was telling somebody the other day, I've been studying the Bible and teaching it for three decades. And I still discover new stuff every time I open the book. And new stuff i got to apply. <laughs> but one thing that we cannot forget is that we are loved by God. God so loved you that he gave his only son. How much more can he do? He put his love on display at the cross. He demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to be saved from his wrath, and we're saved by his life. This is why you can be thankful in every season. The Thessalonian congregation was going through difficulty, but Paul says, I'm thankful for you because you are loved by the Lord. God loves you. Don't believe any lies or misinformation about that love. 
And he has chosen you, notice, from the beginning for salvation. Now, most scholars believe from the beginning of time here, and I'll give you a, a couple of scriptures on that. There is a variant reading in this text. Let me just mention it to you. Some manuscripts have the idea here that from the beginning has the idea of the first fruits. And as I have done some homework on the passage, I think the majority of scholars believe that it's from the beginning of time. And let me just explain that just for a second. There's a lot of different views on election and the predestination of believers, and there's some controversy as it relates to that. But let me just say to you that I hold to a view called simultaneous election. You don't have to believe my view, but here's, here's what it says. It says, because God is eternal, his, his nature is eternal, he knows everything, he's omniscient. There's nothing that God learns, he already knows everything, right? So God does not have to look down a corridor of time, see who might receive him, or, or do something like this. You know what? You're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Everything for God is now. And so simultaneous election argues, this is just something to, for your consideration, that God already knows everything. It's all before him now. And so he doesn't have to choose or look down a corridor of time. Everything is now for God. Amen? He already knows who his people are. He already knows every segment of time, who would be saved and who would be lost, because he doesn't have to wait to see what happens. He's eternal in his nature and all-knowing in his knowledge. Everybody with me? Now, a lot of these things stretch our brain a little bit, and I'm not saying that these are all easy answers, but this is one way that you can think about it is that God is never surprised by anything. He doesn't have to predict something in the future, although he gives us prophecy for us. It's not for him. It's for us. And God loves you. And God chose you from the beginning for salvation. I mentioned to you the variant reading, Aparkain, I think is how you say the word. One manuscript family has Aparkain, or Aparkain, which is firstfruits. And the other has op, our case, and if you're familiar with the word RK, that's the word for uh, beginning, uh, or architect, one who's the originator, if you will, the English word. And so most scholars lean towards from the beginning of time God chose us. Uh, this is an unusual word, uh, but it is used in the Septuagint for the choosing of Israel, if you're interested, write down Deuteronomy 26.18. I was, Deuteronomy 26.18, I was reading F.F. Bruce on this idea of uh, God choosing us and election, and um, he makes a comment, and I'll see if I can pull it up here. It's page 191. Here it is. This is Bruce. Just listen to it. I think it will give you another angle, and it, this has to do with this first fruits idea. He says, quote, it is a travesty of God's electing grace to suppose that because he chooses some for salvation, all the others are thereby consigned to perdition. On the contrary, I'm just giving you Bruce's view. If some are chosen for special blessing, it is in order that others may be blessed through them and with them. This is a constant feature in the pattern of divine election throughout the Bible story from Abraham onward. 
Those who are chosen constitute the first fruits, looking at the other possible uh, language of this text, bearing the promise of a rich harvest to come. Let me just explain. Bruce's take, or one angle to look at this, is that when God chose Abraham, and then by virtue of that, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have a Jewish nation. What was the purpose of the Jewish nation? It was to be a light to the Gentiles. So Bruce is giving us another angle with all this predestination and free will argument to think about. That when God chose Israel, it wasn't just exclusively to love Israel. It was to work in Israel to produce the Messiah and ultimately that Israel would be a light to the nations, i.e. to bring others to salvation. Everybody with me? So Bruce says, maybe we need to begin to open up our theology a little bit more instead of thinking about you're in, you're out, and God chose that person and didn't choose this person, which is called double predestination. I don't hold that view, by the way. But more that when someone is chosen, part of the purpose of God choosing them is that they would then reach other people. Everybody with me? And so I believe that somewhere in God's uh, grace and foreknowledge, he does this choosing. You can't avoid the word, but at the same time, we have to respond. And we respond to the gospel. Notice it says uh, in verse 14, it was for this he called you, through our gospel. And at the end of verse 13, it says, through sanctification by the Spirit and what? Faith in the truth. Now you could say within verse 13, you have the divine side and the human side. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and, notice, faith in the truth. I'll just say this. God is not going to believe for you. When the Bible calls upon human beings to repent and believe, to place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's your part. Now, whether in your beliefs, and I'm getting into some deep waters, but it's into our text, it's in our text here. Whether in your belief you believe that God gives people faith, and that's one possible position, or one other thought is that man is a passive participant. He's got a slice of the pie. In other words, I believe that God is not going to believe for you. (laughs) He calls you to repent and you to believe, but he calls to us through the gospel. So the word of God goes out and calls people. And it's it's a, a beautiful thing to think about in that in the gospel proclamation, the call of God goes out. And it then mentions in verse 13 this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that regenerates the believer. And it is the Spirit of God that sanctifies the believer. And so some of you say, why, why the word sanctification here? You would think that the word regeneration might be used here, or that having to do with being born again. But the idea of sanctification is a process that begins with being born again or it begins with regeneration. There's three tenses of salvation that you need to think about. You are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Amen? Three tenses of salvation. You are saved if you're a Christian. The moment that you... Trust Jesus Christ, you are saved. You move from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. 
but you are in the process of being saved as you're being sanctified more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're being saved more from the filth of this world, from the weight of sin, and you will be saved. That is, one day you will get a new body and you will experience the fullness of your salvation or the fullness of your redemption. So there's a lot of time and energy that you can spend on all these concepts and the little angles of it. But here's one thing I rejoice in. God chose me and God loves me. Do I fully understand why? No. I don't know why he decided to put his love on me. I wandered into a church in the late 80s with my beautiful bride. And I was broken. I was weighed down with sin. I was confused. I had made a mess of my life in a very short period of time. At this point, I'm, I, was, uh, I was five. No, I'm just kidding. I wasn't five in, there in the late 80s. Just kidding. Anyway, some of you are trying to do the math. Just forget about it. Forget about the math. But here's the thing. Within my teenage years and into my early 20s, I, I was a disaster. And a preacher opened this Bible and began to call out with the gospel. And I heard God's call through the proclamation of the gospel. And I know probably just about every one of you in here can resonate with that. You can remember that call when it came. And there were, there were times that you may have heard the gospel prior to that. Maybe for some reason it just didn't click. But then there was a moment where you just got it. You saw it for what it was. I had the privilege of leading a young lady to uh, open her heart to the Lord just Wednesday of last week. It's, it's always so beautiful to see it. You know, to experience that firsthand uh, opportunity to, to clarify and articulate the beauty and simplicity of the gospel and to watch somebody just say, yes, yes. And, and you know what you, what you find just about every time is that the Lord's already been working in that person's life. And there's so many dots that you find out later, oh, this person had people praying for them, and this person had co-workers sharing with them, and that, was, that moment was the culmination of the grace of God, the power of the gospel, amen? Because the power of the gospel is there to save us, to give us hope. The Holy Spirit works in that. And so uh, God loves you. I put some things in my notes here just to kind of track the flow here. God chose you. How? Through the sanctification by the Spirit. God has, is, and will sanctify you. That means set you more and more apart for Him unto His glory. You heard His voice through the preaching of the Word. You responded, verse 13, by placing faith in the truth. That's the human side. The calling came out through the proclamation of the gospel, and we'll see in the next verse to the end that you would gain the glory of God. Isn't that cool? That you would gain the glory of God. Look at verse 14. It was for this he called you through our gospel. Look at how the calling came. That you may gain or share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the end is going to be this, that you're going to gain the glory. What do you, what do you mean by that, Pastor Michael? 
Well, the, the Jews used to teach that when Adam and Eve sinned, and specifically Adam here in this uh, quote that I found, that Adam lost his luster in the garden. What does that mean? That means that the divine light that was within Adam, his beautiful direct fellowship with God, when he sinned, he died spiritually. Now, he didn't die right there on the spot, right? When, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, uh, they're, they're hiding from God. And, and even though in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die, that's the, that's the uh, proclamation that God made, yet at the moment they eat, ate the forbidden fruit, their death was a spiritual death. It wasn't a physical death. Physical death would follow many years later, many, many years later. But they died spiritually. But notice, Bible students, those of you wrestling with these ideas, is that they could still hear the voice of God. In fact, God came calling for Adam in the garden. Adam, where are you? God uh, has the best GPS system, by the way. He already knew where Adam was. God positioning system. Anyway, it w- that was more for Adam and for us. Where are you? Well, I was naked and I was afraid. So I hid myself from you. Who told you you were naked? Well, his eyes had been opened to shame. Sin brings shame. Sin causes you to hide from God, to suppress the truth. God is looking for Adam. God is the lover of lost souls. And that comes into full full picture when Jesus Christ says the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And it's amazing that into the Thessalonian region came the Apostle Paul with some other missionary brothers, and the gospel went out, and God called people through the gospel. I want you to hold your place in First, Second Thessalonians. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Take a peek with me. Romans 10. Here's what Paul says, and he's dealing with a section that deals with Israel and some of these topics that we're dealing with about what happened to Israel and how does the gospel work and all of that. Romans 10, here's verse 13, and here's what it says. For whoever will call, Romans 10, 13, on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring, here's what we bring, glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The church has a mission. God's call, and I will say this in the majority of instances, although we do hear about people who have dreams about Jesus, and some people have said that they have had dreams and visions, especially in the Muslim world, and I'm talking about recently now from good sources, dreams and visions about Jesus, but the normal mode, the majority of time by which the call of God will go out to a group of people or a region is through a preacher. The call of God goes out through those who preach. And by the way, that's all of us. That's not some guy behind a wooden structure once a week or twice a week. 
We preach the word. We go and we preach. You have a sphere of influence at work. You have a sphere of influence at school, a sphere of influence in your neighborhood. And you go and you bring light to them because there are people in that sphere that I can never reach. But you can reach them. And I'll tell you, we're missing a big thing in our Christian life if we're not calling out to people through the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. The privilege of the church has always been to proclaim a gospel that saves. Amen? And so this is what we should do. We put it out there. And we put it out there so that people can experience the new birth, so that they can be uh, eventually gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Adam sinned, I mentioned to you, the Jewish uh, rabbis say that he lost his luster or uh, the glory diminished. We all have sinned and we all fall short, Romans 3.23, of the glory of God. And when we receive Jesus Christ, the spark comes back into our lives. We move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We are being moved in sanctification from one degree of glory to another, which will finally be realized when we gain the glory of Lord Jesus Christ and we get glorified bodies. Can I get a witness? Anybody feeling that one? Come on. See, that's where it's going to be realized when you are going to be like him because you will see him just as he is. You will gain the glory. You'll be in a kingdom where it will be eaten, restored, where the glory will be back on full display. Jesus, when he's praying in John 17, says, Father, I pray for these that they will be able to behold my glory, the glory that I had for you, with you, before the world was. I want these disciples of mine to see me in the glory. They've only seen the veiled glory, although they got a little taste of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember when they, he went up there and they got a taste of the glory and his face changed and everything was bright and Moses and Elijah showed up and Peter was like, man, we better build three shelters. <laughs> we better house the glory. Peter wasn't so dumb. That's what he was thinking. Glory gets housed in a tabernacle. That's why he said, should we build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah? That's what you do with glory, right? That's how the glory came down in the tabernacle in days gone by, and then the temple of Solomon. That's what's going on, and they got a little foretaste of coming attractions, if you like. <laughs> Back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so Paul has been writing to this church so that they don't lose hope, so that they don't become disturbed or freaked out, but that they are grounded in the truth. So much substance in these couple of verses here. You are called, 14, through our gospel that you may gain the glory, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So then, brethren, in light of this, what should we do? If that's true, if that's who we are, if that's where we're headed, what should we do now? Because it was tough to be a Christian in Thessalonica, just like it is in much of the world today. 
So then, brethren, don't, you could say, be unsettled. Rather, stand firm. Some of you need to mark that. Stand firm. That means persevere, persist, and hold to the traditions, I'll explain in a moment, which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Reference in your notes there or in your margin, chapter 2, verse 2, because that's where Paul talks about don't be quickly shaken either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. Make sure that when you are grounding yourself in something, it is from us, whether it is oral or whether it is a letter like 1 Thessalonians, for example. The traditions that you were taught. What do we do with this idea of tradition? Well, the NIV actually has it this way. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Now, as the New Testament times unfolded, the apostles' doctrine was shaped orally before it was written. For example, in Acts 2.42, the church was constantly uh, giving themselves to the apostles' doctrine to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, Acts 2.42. In the early days of the, the church, the apostles' doctrine was communicated orally, that is, it was spoken by the mouth. Before the New Testament was written down, the earliest New Testament books, conservative scholars would say, are AD 49 or 50. That's a good 20 years, maybe 17 to 20 years after the events of the death resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church had oral teachings that were passed along to the early churches that were being established, the early believers, called, you could say, the Apostles' Doctrine, then put in letters which we now possess. That word, traditions there, if you have a New American Standard, is a word para, P-A-R-A, Dosis, D-O-S-I-S, paradosis. It is a transmission, the word for tradition or teaching. It is a giving over. It is that which is delivered or the substance of a teaching. It has the idea of receiving and delivering. The essential thing, reading from my notes, that is handed on by one to another is that which is received in the first place from God. It is received from God and delivered to the people. This is the word for tradition. It stands for all Christian teaching, oral or written. The prominent idea of paradosis, says one author, is that of an, an authority external to the teacher. That is, he receives it from outside himself, himself, says Lightfoot. Milligan points out that the word is used in the inscriptions of treasure lists and inventories the articles enumerated being handed over to another person. Tradition is the transmission of truth from one party to another. And it is not something that is outside of biblical truth. Because here's where we've gotten some debate in some circles, I'll just put it out there, between evangelical Christianity Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy, and you could probably add others to the list, where some people argue that there's tradition that should be on par with Scripture. Let me just give you a simple test, because I'm not saying that all tradition in that sense is bad, like 
how your mama taught you to cook the turkey and all that kind of stuff. Here's, here's what I'm saying. This tradition is biblical transmission truth from God to us. And if a tradition, please hear what I'm going to say because this is the simple test, contradicts the word of God, then chuck the tradition. It is not that complicated. If a movement says this tradition should be elevated above the word of God, you test everything in light of the word of God. And if a tradition is not in keeping with the word of God, then it is not to be embraced. It is rather to be discarded. So whatever authority sits there and makes a proclamation and says, well, this is, this is what the Holy Spirit's saying or this is what God is saying. And I go to a Bible verse and I say, well, the Bible actually says just the opposite of what you just said. Then I'm going to go with the book, the Word of God, and not the man. Everybody with me? This is a simple test. But this word for tradition is not that sense that it would be something passed along from a human uh, uh, source. Rather, Paul is talking about tradition that has to do with the Word of God. It's been pointed out by Dunn that there are three types of tradition in Paul. And again, I know this is getting a little bit technical, but this is important. Charismatic, that's tradition concerning the gospel. Church tradition, that would be practices within the church. And ethical tradition, that is teachings that have to do with Christian behavior. I'm going to give you a couple quick examples. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just past uh, Romans, where we just were. 1 Corinthians 11. And let me just show you a couple places where you're going to see these examples. Let me give you an example of church tradition, and let me show you these ideas of transmission. 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received, says Paul, from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So paradosis is received from the divine source. Here it has to do with the Lord's Supper. We've read this many, many times. It's received by Paul and given to the people. What I received from the Lord, that I delivered to you. And then he says, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he said, this is my body. So that's a practice that the church has. We practice communion because Paul, and of course the Lord Jesus spoke this as well, received that teaching and passed it to us. That's why we take communion here in the church. Go over to 1 Corinthians 15. Now notice received and uh, delivered is within 1 Corinthians 15. It has to do with the uh, long chapter on the resurrection, but here specifically about the gospel. Here's a gospel-centered tradition. I make known to you, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here's the transmission language. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Again, the key words are delivered and received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on with multiple appearances that the Lord made. Here's my point. Paradosis, the word for tradition here, is biblical truth handed in this case, to Paul, and delivered then to the church, and as you walk it out to us. Amen? And so this is the idea. 
And it is really truth has been handed down. Turn back to 2 Thessalonians. This is John MacArthur. He says, The concept of tradition has been loaded down with a lot of cultural and ecclesiastical baggage over the centuries. But Paul does not have in mind a body of extra-biblical tradition that is equal to God's revelation in Scripture. In fact, the Bible condemns such human tradition. The Greek, the Greek word translated traditions literally means things handed down and refers to divine revelation, close quote. And then one other author says, it seems likely that we are to see verse 15 in terms of the broader context of chapter 2, then we probably have a reference specifically to traditions that have to do with the day of the Lord or the return of Christ. And so Paul is specifically dealing probably with the context here as it relates to teaching about the day of the Lord. He got the truth and he delivered it to the people and that's what we are to be anchored in. Traditions is a word, Leon Morris, that points to the fact that the Christian message is essentially derivative. It does not originate in people's fertile imagination, but rests on the facts of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul came into Thessalonica, he went into the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Bible, from the Scriptures. He was giving evidence that Jesus is the Christ. This is what we do as the church. We don't have to make up anything. We got plenty right here. It's not the verses in the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the ones that I do understand. Because, hey, living out this by the power of the Holy Spirit is what we're called to do. There's power in God's Word to produce. These facts are settled and the church's job is to guard the gospel. The church of the living God, 1 Timothy 3.15, is the pillar and support of the truth. Guard the treasure that's been entrusted to you, Paul says to Timothy. The church's job is not to bunt when it should take a full swing. It is not to compromise when the winds of culture blow as they will in every generation. The church says, no, we guard the truth. We pass along what's been handed to us with no variation. We don't change it. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We don't apologize for it. We pass along the transmission of truth from one generation to the next. God forbid that we would be derelict in those duties. God forbid that. And yet we see it all over the landscape where there's compromise everywhere. And for what? Because one generation says, well, maybe the Bible's not right about this or not right about that. No, the Bible's right. And it ain't going to change. And when we start to make adjustments because the winds of the culture blow to and fro, we're in trouble. And by the way, God is going to hold us accountable. Don't back down, brethren. Hold fast to the teachings. Do it with love. Do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. But don't, don't compromise. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, Colossians 2.8, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. The Lord said, Isaiah 29.13, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want some rehearsed speech. He wants a relationship with you. 
If you're in a situation right now where it's this, you say the same thing just to get by the obligatory prayer before the meal, you better go back and check your relationship. Amen? Because that's not what God wants. Can you imagine if you had a, a relationship with someone and every time you talked to them, they said the same three sentences to you the, the same way? Good to see you today. Uh, hope you have a great day. Bless the world. Amen. See ya. And then next time you see them, hope you have a great day. Good to see you. Uh, bless the world. Amen. You'd, you'd say, what are you, a robot? What's wrong with you? Can we talk about the weather or something? <laughs> Is everybody with me? God wants our heart. He's not looking for our traditions or our rote memorization of different things that we can produce in a moment's notice. Jesus says, you, you, you know, they said, oh, your disciples, they don't do the ceremonial cleansing of their hands and you transgress their tradition of the elders. And Jesus says, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Why do you do that? You make excuses for the things you tell the people and you forsake the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You can write down Matthew 15, 1 through 9. I remember, you know, when I first started reading the Bible, I was shocked with what was in it. <laughs> Anybody been there before? When I started actually reading the Bible for myself, I had heard what everybody else said was in there. And then I started reading it for myself, and I was like, whoa, that's the opposite of what I heard. That's the opposite of what I was taught. <laughs> I think I better read this book a little bit more. And boy, I took a highlighter and a pen out, and I just started reading. <laughs> and some of you can completely, this is where you are right now. You're like discovering what Jesus is actually about, what the Word of God says. It's awesome. Stand firm in the truth. Closing prayer. Now, this is, uh, you could say, a benediction or a prayer for the people. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, Jesus is in the emphatic position here in the Greek, and God our Father. This is, this is rare, but Jesus is before God our Father. And just to save you time, scholars would say this is just another evidence that Jesus is God and one with the Father. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and, and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Father, thank you that the love that you have for your people brings us eternal comfort. The word, the name Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts. And Nehemiah looked at a broken Jerusalem. The walls had been laying in rubble. It seemed like people were just passing by the mess and not trying to do anything about it. And a man named Nehemiah went back to rebuild. A great leader in our Bibles, and his name Beautifully means Yahweh comforts. You are the God of all comfort. You're the God of hope, the God of peace. And you bring your people eternal consolation. It's not temporal, it's not temporary, it's eternal. 
We have an eternal hope, way beyond what we see now, whether times are wonderful and great or whether times are tough and difficult. We have comfort in the Lord. We have a hope that is the anchor of our souls. And even when it gets stormy, you anchor us to that hope, Lord. And we are so grateful that you loved us, that you chose us, that you're sanctifying us, that when that gospel went out, we were able to receive a gift that is a free gift. We didn't earn it or deserve, deserve it. We just simply received it. For it's by grace that we have been saved through faith. And it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast, but we are your workmanship. And we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh, Lord, equip us for every good work and word. Give us that hope. Renew and refresh your people. These have been interesting and difficult months. There's so many things I could name right now that have been tough, but you are the constant. Be still and know, I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Would you take a Selah moment? That's what the Psalms say, a moment just to ponder and just pause. Meditate on God's truth. Receive it for yourself. If you're not a Christian today, our prayer for you is that you'd open your heart. Just keep your head and heart bowed. Just say, Lord Jesus, if, it, if it's you and you've not settled it, man, I've heard the call. And I open my heart to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Please grant me that gift of salvation. I repent of my sin. And I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you've called me and chosen me. Thank you that I'm in your family. Would you help me to walk with you, Lord, and trust you? Some of you who are believers today, and maybe you've been wayward, that would be a great prayer. Just, Lord, help me to walk with you and trust you. And then, Lord, for this beautiful, wonderful congregation, thank you for their faithfulness to the gospel, their fighting the good fight of faith in our generation. May we be found faithful on that day. We love you, and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name.